morning. So in 1989, I was a senior at Shawnee Mission Northwest High School. Um, really? <laughs> uh, I don't even remember what our mascot was. Like, go Cougars, maybe? I don't remember. Um, we were black and orange. Anyway, so 1989, I was a senior at Shawnee Mission Northwest High School, uh, new to the high school. And um, somehow, by... Uh, some turn of events, I ended up with the lead in the high school play. Um, it happened to be uh, Henry V that year. So it was, a, it was a fairly daunting role as far as lines go. Um, it was large. Um, and on occasion, the director would send me and the assistant director, um, who was a classmate, into one of the dressing rooms to, to rehearse and to um, learn lines. So one particular afternoon, we go into the dressing room and um, we were doing lines to a degree, but there happened to be a, uh, a mannequin head, you know, one of those um, mannequin head, uh, styrofoam mannequin head that you put a wig on, and it was sitting on the, on the, um, the, the makeup table. So I, I should give you a picture of this. Big room, uh, mirrors all along one side with seats where you could sit and put your makeup on and all that, um, and then room, and then a bathroom over here, one toilet and a door that closes, and that was the room. So there's this mannequin head, this, this styrofoam mannequin head, um, and I don't know why, but there also happened to be um, uh, rubbing alcohol in the, in the room, right? And I don't know why, but I happen to have matches. Um, so we'd done lines for a while, and then I decided to show this young lady named Amy um, how great rubbing alcohol and matches go together. So, you know, you can draw, you can, you can draw with rubbing alcohol and light it, and it, it lights and then evaporates and it's gone. So I had this fantastic idea that I wonder what would happen if we poured rubbing alcohol on the styrofoam head and lit that on fire. Um, so that's what we did. I poured the rubbing alcohol on the styrofoam head and lit it on fire. And if anybody's ever lit styrofoam on fire, um, it's not good. It went up in a massive ball of flame. Um, and I realized quickly that I had done something not good. Um, there was a trash can, a metal trash can over here. So I quickly, I grabbed the trash can. And I'm thinking it's not too bad yet. So I pour all of the trash out of the trash can onto the floor and knock the styrofoam head into the trash can. Well, it now is a trash can of black billowing smoke coming out, right? And I'm thinking, what can I do with this? Um, and I run to the bathroom and turn it over and put the styrofoam head into the toilet, flush the toilet, slam the door, and we go about our lines. No, 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 you don't want to clap for this. No, no. I think maybe we're missing the heart of the story here if you're clapping. Um, so we kind of just hoped that things were good. Um, and then black smoke started billowing out from underneath the door. I opened the door, and the toilet was on fire. <laughs> um, and we realized we're, we're in trouble. Now, the reason I tell you this, um, today we're going to look at the anatomy of sin and um, how sin, at its very heart, is like a black hole that consumes and destroys everything. Um, and this is a picture of that consuming and destroying. Well, um, 
it would have been great if the toilet would have gone out, but it didn't. So we ran into the, the, um, the gym, not the gym, the stage area, told the director, oh my gosh, there's something on fire. <laughs> we didn't tell him what it was, it was on fire. Um, so he, oh, he comes and he goes and they call the fire department, the fire department comes, um, they put it out, the, the toilet exploded because it was on fire and the heat and the, the, heat and the cold, the, the porcelain literally exploded. Um, and then we got honored for being the ones to discover it. <laughs> No, no, it's, it wasn't good. There was one other person that knew. It was her boyfriend. And I, well, I was always afraid he was going to tell someone. And granted, I wasn't going to murder him. But I can't say that it didn't go through my head. <laughs> um, it started with just a match and some, some isopropyl alcohol, and it turned into this like honest fear that I lived with all through my senior year of high school that someone was going to find out what had happened. Um, you know those, those memes that escalated quickly? That's, that, that was kind of what I was living. Um, anyway, we pick up in 2 Samuel 11 with the story of David and Bathsheba, and we have a similar thing take place. We see the anatomy of sin in somewhat similar light. Um, the heavy winter rains have passed. Spring harvest is around the corner. And King David sends out Joab, the leader of the army, the Israelite army, and they go and they attack and destroy Rabbah, um, the capital city of the Ammonites. David, though, for reasons we don't know, um, don't necessarily want to assume it was for bad reasons, but he stayed home. And we're told that one evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. And from the roof of the palace, he sees a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and the seed was sown. While he sees her with his eyes, the seed that was sown was a seed that came from his heart. For Mark is very clear that it's from within, Jesus says, out of a person's heart that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery. Greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly, all these evils come from inside and defile a person. From within him, his desire for her arises, and he feeds it, and he begins to let the darkness unfurl. He sends someone to find out about her. Now, we don't know who it was. We don't know if it's a gardener, a trusted official, but I'd be willing to bet that it's someone that he chose intentionally who would not question or ask him why he wanted to know. And the man comes and he brings back word and he says, she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And for the first time, we meet the woman, a woman, who will occupy a place in the genealogy of Jesus. She's married to a man named Uriah, who's listed in 2 Samuel 23 as one of David's 30 mighty warriors. Despite being a Hittite, he has a good Yahwistic name, a good Israelite name, meaning Yahweh is my light. He may have been born in Israel, or he may have changed his name, but he is one of David's elite men and warriors. And at this point, the game should be over. She's married, and she's married to one of David's most trusted warriors. But sin is deceitful, and it's destructive. When we allow it to 
desire will fill us and it will overtake us. So we need to know our enemy. Um, in World War II, ample stories of sailors who were stranded on life rafts in the Pacific Ocean. The sun would beat down on them and one of the most difficult pieces was the thirst would become truly unbearable. But they're surrounded by cool, wet ocean water. And all they know, although they know that the salt in the water will actually lead to their death, their thirst makes them crave it more than anything else in the world. The deception of the cold liquid would often defeat their knowledge, defeat the fact that they knew if they drank it, it would harm them. But there it is, cold and desirable. So David, he sends some messengers to go get her. He dips his glass in that salt water. He raises it up to look at it more closely. And he may have even told himself that's what he was going to do. He was going to invite Bathsheba over, perhaps just to meet her, perhaps just to find out more about her. But anyone watching things unfold would likely have said that there was no doubt about what was going to happen. His desire for sin had become a locomotive, literally all but impossible to stop. Scripture says he slept with her. Then she went back home. It doesn't say if she was willing, if she acquiesced because he was king. It doesn't say if she cried during their sexual encounter. There's a lot of humanity in between the lines of that statement. He slept with her, then she went back home. The salt water proved too tempting for David. He drank his fill and he threw his cup overboard and let it sink to the bottom. The affair in his mind is likely over. However, that cup rises back and floats to the surface. Scripture tells us the woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. And David is now confronted by the reality, the depth, and the consequences of his sin. But before we look back, before we look at what he does, let's look back. Every step along the way so far, David has had a way out. He's had an escape. He could have at every single point chosen repentance, and chosen life. When he saw her on the rooftop, he could have gone to one of his wives. He could have prayed. He could have called a friend and told his friend of his desire, brought the temptation into the light so that it wouldn't fester. When he finds out who she is, she's Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. He could have written a letter of gratitude to Uriah for his service, thanked God for such faithful warriors, confessed his desire to a brother. Even after he had her brought to the palace, Standing before him, he knows what he wants to do. He could have been inspired by Joseph before Potiphar's wife and just run. Run far, far away. But sin devours. Like a black hole, it consumes and it destroys. And when we're trapped in it, it's very rare that we can actually see clearly. With news of the pregnancy, David's response should have been, Oh Lord, what have I done? He should have cried out with the words that he will cry out later about this same account. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. That salt water is coursing through his veins and he can't see. Instead of crying out to the Lord in his living water, instead of bringing his darkness to light, he begins to plot. What can I do? 
I decided that it would be wise to put a styrofoam head into a toilet, David comes up with a simpler solution. He's going to bring Uriah in from the field of battle under the guise of getting a report about how things are going, and he's going to get him to sleep with his wife. That way David can say it's clearly his child. There are still other issues. Bathsheba knows. It's likely people in the court know, but he can deal with those later. So that's what David does. He sends for Uriah from the battlefield. Uriah comes. David asks him about Joab and the soldiers and the war. And then he tells him, Uriah, go home and wash your feet, which is a euphemism for go home and be with your wife. So Uriah leaves. David sends a gift after him to go with him for he and his wife. And you have to at this point think David is thinking how wise he is, how he's got everything under control. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with the king's servants, never going home. The one thing that David did not account for was Uriah's honor. If his fellow soldiers were abstaining as they fought with the ark of God in their midst, he tells David, as surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. And like with Bathsheba, David has an opportunity to see clearly, to hear the conviction of Uriah's honor and to repent. Think, he's got Uriah before him. And Uriah won't go and lay with his wife. And he has the opportunity to say, oh, Uriah, I'm so sorry. Forgive me for what I have done. To bow humbly before him and repent. But that's not what he does. He says, stay here one more day and tomorrow I will send you back. And the sin continues to creep. The black hole grows larger and the net is just going to get dirtier. David eats with him and gets Uriah drunk, assuming that drunk he'll be less honorable and he'll go and sleep with his wife. But it turns out that a drunk Uriah is actually more righteous than a sober David because Uriah, again, sleeps with David's servants outside, not going to his wife. And now David goes to a place that I doubt he would have ever thought possible when he was standing on the rooftop and he sees Bathsheba, if someone would have told him, in a short bit of time, you're going to murder her husband because of what you're about to do, David would likely have never, ever believed it. But he does. He writes a letter to Joab. Put Uriah out in front where the fighting is the fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. Uriah, who's been faithful and honorable, likely to David's annoyance, is made to carry his own death warrant back to the battlefield. And you can almost see David blaming Uriah for being too upright. Uriah, if you just would have slept with your wife, I wouldn't have to have you killed. But the plan is carried out. And in carrying out the plan, several soldiers, including Uriah, die. The black hole of David's sin now has claimed lives. Not just Uriah's, but other soldiers who are fighting for him and for God. And when word is sent back to David, instead of being rocked to the core by his sin, he sends word back to Joab. Hear what he says. Hear the callousness of this. Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Now we have to pause and remember who this man is because that sounds like an evil, evil man. This is David, the same David that was anointed by Samuel to be king over Israel, who was protected um, from Saul by God. The same David 
who ran out to meet Goliath when the battle lines were drawn, yelling this, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it's not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. This is David, the man after God's own heart. So almost a year goes by. A king who's a murderer has a wife that he stole and a child that was conceived in sin. And God sends Nathan the prophet to bring his judgment. But before we look at God's word to David, a couple observations about sin and its anatomy. Sin is not ever innocuous. It is never safe, it is never harmless, and it is never tame. It is also not individual. We sin as part of the body, and the body is impacted, sometimes in ways we see, oftentimes in ways that we don't. But we never ever sin unto ourselves in a vacuum. And sin justifies and it blinds. So God sends Nathan to David, and Nathan comes to tell him a story. There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. This really isn't an odd image for ancient Near East. It wasn't uncommon to keep pet sheep in the house like we keep dogs. So we have a rich man who has sheep and cattle and a poor man with one sheep that he loves. And a traveler comes to the rich man. But the rich man refrains from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. And David is able to see clearly. He's able to assess properly, and he knows what judgment should befall. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And isn't that like us, really? Honestly, how easily we see how easily we feel justice when it's outside of ourselves. When we see others that fall and stumble the same way that we do, but it's so easy for us to assess it in them. How easy it is to stand in judgment of others despite our own sin. Then Nathan said to David, you're the man. And I think of Moses, who I think must have looked over his shoulder for years and years after he fled Egypt, knowing that he'd killed a man and wondering, is justice coming? And you remember when God calls Moses from the burning bush, he doesn't bring judgment upon him. He instead calls him into service. But this, this is different, for David is confronted with the sin that he's been captive to, the darkness that had been consuming his heart and likely his soul, and it's brought to light. And then this is what the Lord God says to David through Nathan. Hear these words. 
I anointed you king over Israel, David. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? Nathan then pronounces the judgment that's going to fall on David for his actions. And David's finally humbled. And he says, I've sinned against the Lord. And the spell is broken. And David repents. But sin has revealed its nature. It's anatomy. The reason that we study anatomy is so, so that we better understand how things fit together and how they work. And when we look at the anatomy of sin, what we see is a picture of a lie. Sin thrives in darkness and in hiding. It promises to satisfy, but it consumes and it destroys, and it always brings death. Like the ocean full of salt water that promises to quench thirst, it tempts our flesh with empty promises, and it kills. Now we also see that there is always an escape, always opportunity for repentance and turning away. But we need to be reminded, we need to be warned about sin. That's what this passage can do. It helps us to see more clearly the sin that is before us. We need to understand sin better because Scripture is clear about the anatomy of our own human hearts. The heart is deceitful above all things. It's self-focused and it is hungry. And I'll tell you this, despite everything that I just said, despite the truth that we just looked at, my heart still desires to light that mannequin head on fire again. My heart still desires and sees and is tempted by sin. With that reality, that sin is tempting, even when you know truth, we have to go to the anatomy, the heart of the anatomy of sin, so that we might see it as clearly as possible. For here's the truth. When we choose to sin, we are always choosing death over life. For when we sin, we are always sinning against God. Look, David sinned against Bathsheba. We know that. He sinned against Uriah. He sinned against Joab. He sinned against the soldiers and the families that were affected when they were murdered. But David knows that at its heart, his sin was against God. He calls out, I've sinned against the Lord. He did not believe that God provided all he needed or that he would provide all that he needed. He didn't provide, he didn't believe that what God had provided was good enough or that his commands were good and true. He didn't believe that God stands with hands open ready to give him more than he could imagine. He didn't believe. And he sinned against God. The most penetrating, most eye-opening sentences in this entire account, <clears throat> it's not when David says, I've sinned against the Lord. It's when the Lord says through, the, through Nathan, if all this had been too little, I would have given you more. A father to his son, reminding him how much he would give him, how much he loved him. My friends, that's us. When we choose sin, we're choosing death over life. Like a dog who, who is, and forgive my graphic, but it's scriptural. For a dog who chooses to eat its own vomit 
instead of turning to the master who had feeded the greatest banquet of steak that it could imagine. That's a picture of us when we choose sin over the blessing that God offers us to his children. He has his arms open, offering us life and blessing and grace and mercy and joy. And if any of us should doubt that God will give us more than the world could ever offer, we need only look at the cross. David's son would end up paying the price for his father's sin. He would die in his place. And God's son would pay the price for our sin, dying in ours. But hear this. Hear this. He dies in our place not so that we could be held back, not so that we could be hindered, not so that we could be oppressed, but so that we could truly live. The price of our sin paid by Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Our hearts regenerated by Holy Spirit and the shackles of sin cast off forever. Our hearts may still yearn for sin at times, but don't despair and don't settle. God died that we might be justified and freed from sin. And he always stands ready to give more than we could ever imagine. That is our God. Despite the sin in our hearts, he loves us. And when he justifies us, he looks upon us and sees us. All of our desires, all of our passions, all of our sins. But he also sees the righteousness of his son that has paid the price for the sin that we never could. Don't settle. Don't settle for sin. For it is a black hole that would destroy, consume, and eat our hearts, eat our lives. No, turn to God who offers us life and life abundantly. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, you are gracious and you are good. Thank you, Father, for the mercy that you extend to us. Please transform us to be more like Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.